I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. My guest today is Jill Bialowski. She's the author of four volumes of poetry, The End of Desire, Subterranean, a finalist for the James Laughlin Prize, Intruder, and most recently, The Players. She's also written three novels, House Under Snow, The Life Room, and The Prize. She's the author of the New York Times bestselling and highly acclaimed memoir, History of a Suicide. It was a finalist for the Book for a Better Life Award. She's also the co-author of an anthology, Wanting a Child, with Helen Schulman. Her newest memoir is Poetry Will Save Your Life. Her poems and essays have appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's, The Atlantic Monthly, Oprah Magazine, Paris Review, Kenrin Review, and many others. In 2014, she was honored by the Poetry Society of America for her distinguished contribution to poetry. I know her best as the executive editor and vice president of that wonderful publishing house, W.W. Norton & Company. Jill, welcome to The Literary Life. Thank you, Mitch. It's so great to be here. So tell me, what brings you to Miami? So I'm here um, staying at the Betsy Hotel for their fellowship. They they offer writers uh, a week stay to work. And I'm just, it's been wonderful. I've been waiting to dig into a novel that I've written several drafts of, but wanted to get back to it with um, some edits 
And so it's been just great to be in a place that is devoted to books. The hotel, you, you, I'm sure you know the hotel. I do, and they deserve a really good commercial. So yes. why don't you tell a little bit about it? Yes, well, you know, I found out about the hotel a few years ago when I came to Miami for a weekend away with my sister. And we wound up at the Betsy Hotel, and I walked in the elevator, and I saw all my favorite pictures or photos of all my favorite book covers in their elevator. And I, I couldn't believe that I came upon this hotel and did not know that it was um, that it was literary, that I think um, I don't know that much about Deb, um, but she's the person who invited me. Um, and I discovered that her father was a writer. And that Her father was a great Yiddish poet. Yes, and I have um and and Deb was lovely enough to give me a copy of of his book. So I walked in my room and on the desktop was um letters from a young poet. And initially I thought, of course, letters to a young poet of Rilke, um uh, which, you know, I've read so many different times at different periods in my life. So it's been a great gift to find a hotel that cares about books, number one. And um, someone there also loves the Beatles. <laughs> they have great photographs. Right, great right. photographs. But it's it's such a warm place, and um, I feel so lucky to be there this week and have time to just think about my own work. And nothing else, well, not family, not my authors. Um, well, the nice thing too is it's right across from the ocean. Yes. So you can take, you can watch the sunrise, and take uh, beautiful strolls along the beach in between the writing process. Yes, and they have a wonderful rooftop as well. Jonathan Plutzik and his wife Leslie are the uh, owners of the hotel, and Deb uh, Deborah Briggs, right. Jonathan's sister. Uh, helps develop all the programming that happens there. And from the beginning, they started as a literary hotel. It's a boutique, beautiful hotel right on South Beach. I can't think of another thing like that, actually, another place like that. Yes, I know. It really just uh, was remarkable to stumble across it in the way that I did. And then I found out about these fellowships, and I wrote to Deb and applied. So there are also... Um, books from other writers who I, I understand have been at the hotel. And in my room was a copy of Gerald Stern's, uh, one of his books of poetry. And he was a former teacher of mine, and now I'm his editor at Norton. Oh, I didn't realize yes, you Yes. And also I saw a copy of another author of mine, uh, Dwayne Reginald Betts, who's a poet, who has a new book about to come out. Um, so, you know, it felt sort of serendipitous. Well, Jerry, who is in his 90s yes. now, actually he and his wife Anne spend a good part of the year in Miami. That's there, right, yes. So Miami's become, well, how have we found Miami? I mean, to me it's become more of a literary community than it once was. Yes, I don't really know that much. I mean, I'd love to come to the book fair that um, – I've been to several times. I think it's wonderful. It's, I think, one of the biggest book fairs I've, I've been to. Um, and there does seem to be a thriving literary community here. You wear so many different hats. I mean, you're a novelist, a poet, 
an editor, a memorist, an essayist. <laughs> it's kind of remarkable. Yeah. I mean, to talk about the literary life, you are steeped in it. Uh, I first met you, and I knew you best at first, through the work you did with John Dufresne. Oh, that's right. Because you are at uh, Norton, which is, I think, one of the greatest publishing houses around. And as an editor there, you work very closely with John. Yes. In fact, we have it. A fun new book of his coming. It's it's not fiction. It's a book about writing called Storyville. Um, and you know he's a terrific teacher. I'm sure you've heard him oh, give workshops. I mean his his students adore him. And we've published also along with his fiction several books about writing that have backlisted very well for us. John has a very famous Friday night class that just about anybody can come to, and they come. And and he has mentored so many wonderful people, I think, yes. as writers. Yes, I heard that. I think he told me that Dennis Lehane was one of his yeah. students. Dennis, I, th I believe, if it's not apocryphal, I think that the um, Dennis's uh, thesis was the first novel that he published. Mm, remarkable. Tell me what it's like to be an editor and a writer at the same time? Yes, that's a great question, um, Mitch, which I actually haven't quite figured out how to answer after all of these years. Um, my joke is that I must just be, you know, a brilliant genius, but we know that that um, that doesn't explain it at all. Really, I would say that um, growing up, I just was a voracious reader and uh, was very lucky to stumble into a poetry workshop when I was an undergraduate at Ohio University. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. And it was there that I found poetry um, through a, a workshop that I took with um, the poet Stanley Plumley, who has sadly recently left us, um, but he was a mentor to me. And uh, Eventually, I ended up at the Writers' Workshop at Iowa, and when I graduated, I moved to New York, um, was very interested in editing because I had worked on some literary magazines in college at the, at, uh, the Ohio Review, uh, a literary publication at that time. I think it's- You were at Ohio University. Yes, at Ohio University. Which had a great press. Just, I think- very lucky to stumble upon a um, editorial position when I was 24 at Norton. Um, and I didn't know that I would stay there, that I would become an editor, but I was interested in exploring it. And did they give you sort of an open portfolio? You could go after anything that interested uh, you? Or well, was it poetry? Was it fiction? Yes. Um, well, Initially, I was an assistant to two editors there. That's how you begin in the publishing world. And um, because I was loved poetry and was interested in poetry, I ended up, you know, we would get these manuscripts that would come in over the transom at that time. Um, you know, we called it the slush pile. Uh, it no longer exists anymore because after... I think after 9-11, um, publishers began to get very anxious about receiving unsolicited manuscripts. But before then, um, 
I did read the slush pile to find authors, and um, eventually I um, actually one of the early poets that I took on, and she's not um, she, and she certainly did not come from the slush pile. Is Joy Harjo, who's our new poet laureate, which is so exciting. She'll be at uh, the book fair in November. As yes, well. yes. I think I began working with her in 1998. And we've worked on many books together, and um, her new book called American Sunrises is gorgeous and powerful and I think important right now. Uh, she's the first Native American to become a poet laureate. To be in publishing, one has to be an optimist um, because there are so many you know, um, difficulties right now in terms of getting attention for books, especially in this political climate uh, where the media is is overwhelmed with politics. So I see that as being one of the challenges, especially for literary books, for fiction. Um, poetry is having a great moment right now, and I think it's because poets have been um, writing the social, political, personal poem for years. And um, finally, gaining a wider audience. Joy, Joy was a pioneer in so many different ways. But I'm seeing now so many different voices coming into the publishing world that hadn't been there before. Um, finding diversity in ways that we never saw. Right. And I don't know if you're seeing that in terms of the submissions you mm -hmm. get, in terms of the authors that you're signing up and that sort of thing as well. Yes. I mean, I think that that's a really great thing and very important uh, to have these new voices. And in terms of um, being a poetry editor, Norton has always really followed in the tradition of some of our earliest acquisitions. Um, poets like Audrey and Rich and Audrey Lord were sort of the founding uh, poets on the list. And um, we've always had a very diverse poetry list, um, publishing uh, writers of color, uh, Martina Spada, as I mentioned Dwayne Betts, um, Rita Dove, um, and I could go on. Yeah. Um, and so in, Norton in, was at the vanguard. Really, we we very much uh, were and still are. Um, in terms of fiction, I do think that um, that fiction writers who are exploring uh, diversity in their work are getting more attention. I'm delighted that one of my authors. Here I am bragging about my authors, but. But um, it's allowed. Yes, thank you. Um, Maza Mengista, um, her her new novel is just out called The Shadow King. And I worked with her, uh, I think, eight years ago on her first novel called Beneath the Lion's Gaze. And this new book took her uh, seven or eight years to finish. And it's, it's absolutely brilliant. And we just found out uh, yesterday that it's going to be reviewed on the cover of the New York Times book review on Sunday. Oh, congratulations. So thank you. Yes. And, and, and Maza deserves it. Um, and where is Maza from? Uh, she's from Ethiopia, um, but she lives here in, she lives in New York. She teaches, I believe at Queens College. I have to I'm not quite sure. Tell us the title certain. of the book again. It's called the um, 
The Shadow King, and it's about the forgotten women warriors uh, during the it Italian invasion of Ethiopia. But it's really much more than that. It's it's just beautifully written and uh, incredibly fierce and dramatic. So that's your day job. Yes. Is yes. to be unearthing all yes, of this. Yes, you see how I've work. been ignoring the <laughs> <laughs> the writer hat <laughs> in this conversation. But I I, I am more comfortable talking about my day job. I, I think that that's because writing is just so uh, personal in a way, so intimate. My work as, as an editor is much more interactive and collaborative in some ways with my colleagues at the publishing house, with the authors that I work with, the agents that I uh, work with and the writing life is is so different. It, it's it's much more interior and um, and just comes from a completely different place. And and in many ways, it assuages a different um, a different impulse. Mm -hmm. You wrote a really wonderful memoir that I loved called "Poetry Will Save Your Life," and um, it was extremely meaningful. Uh, so, so tell me how that works for you. Yes, well, well, thank you. Uh, first of all, that book really came out of um, it, it surprised me, and I think it surprised my editor because years ago i I wrote a memoir called "History of a Suicide: My Sister's Unfinished Life," and after I, I completed that book and it was published, my editor. Um, was curious about my life as a poet and how that came about. And so I told him um, some of the poems that were very meaningful to me during my coming of age. And he suggested that maybe I think about writing, a, you know, a short anthology of the poems that were uh, poems to celebrate or poems that um, can change your life. And once I put together this anthology, I realized that I hadn't really made it my own, that there was nothing really unique about it except that I was collecting poems and writing short headnotes. And um, so I went back, uh, and my editor also was very wise and, and said the same thing to me. And so then I really began to think and mine my own experience with poetry. And I created sort of this hybrid of, you know, part memoir and um, part anthology about these poems that spoke to me. And I think one of the reasons why I undertook this project was because um, I wanted people to understand that poetry, first of all, can be very accessible and that... Um, and a, a way for readers to find their own story in a poem and um, and to sort of demystify poetry. Would you would you speak about some of those early poems? Sure. That, I, that spurred you to write this? Yes, I um, well, one of the first poems that I encountered where I realized a poem was a poem because, of course, I went to Temple, we called it then, not Hebrew school, in um, in Cleveland, Ohio. And, of course, I was very uh, taken with the Psalms. Um, but I didn't associate 
the Psalms as a poem. Um, when I was young, I loved um, Robert Louis Stevenson, but somehow I thought that these were nursery rhymes. And when I was in fourth or fifth grade, my teacher, Miss Hudson, read us a Robert Frost poem, um, The Road Not Taken. And somehow hearing her read it, the poem just opened a door for me. I, I read it, you know, as I feel everyone reads poems through their own experience. And my experience was growing up in a family of all girls. My father died when I was very young, and I always felt very awkward and shy. Um, and when I read that poem, I understood that there was more than one way. And it really was very meaningful to me. Um, Emily Dickinson is, of course, I, I don't know any young girls that love books that have not fallen in love with Emily Dickinson. It was hard to choose which poems of hers I wanted to include. Um, Plath has always been an important poet to me, especially as a teenager and a young adult. When you went, to, when you found yourself in Iowa, mm -hmm. were you there as a poet or as a novelist? A poet. And who were some of the people at Iowa at the time? Yeah, you know, at the time, the um, Donald Justice was teaching, although it was his last year, and I didn't have the opportunity to work with him, unfortunately, because the other poets in the program. Um, said that he gave the most wonderful uh, for, uh, uh, class about poetic form. You know, he grew up in Miami as well. My teachers were Larry Levis, who's an incredible poet. Um, I, I love his work. Uh, Carol Muskie, Dukes, I, I studied with first semester. Gerald Stern and Stanley Plumley, And those at the time... Um, were my teachers. Talk about my I know Stanley recently died, and, and there were so many intersections of people that I know who knew him, people like uh, Dan Halpern and Russell Banks and others. Tell me a little bit about Stanley. That Yes, uh, thank you for asking about Stanley, Mitch, because, um, he, you know, I, I think that, so my story with Stanley is that he was the first as I mentioned, um, mentor to me when I was probably 19 years old at Ohio University. And um, he opened the door to poetry for me because in his class he said one thing that really stayed with me, and I wrote about this in Poetry Will Save Your Life. And, um, you know, he read some of my early drafts, and, you know, he he was very emphatic in saying, Jill, you need to you need to write about what hurts, which was really incredible um, because when I thought about what he said later, I understood that what he meant was that I needed to go into that grief that I had grown up around, you know, experienced. And he saw it. And he saw it in, you know, very nascent, you know, poems of mine. And that really, um, you know, he was a seer. He could he could see into his students' inner world, and I think that that's why he uh, was such a wonderful teacher. Um, and and it was very serendipitous that I found him again when I years later went to get my MFA at Iowa, and then 
the story continues that I was, as an editor at the um, BEA, uh, at one of the Norton booths in, in Washington, D.C., and Stan was living there and, and teaching there at the University of Maryland. And, uh, you know, he walked by the booth. I hadn't seen him in years. And um, he said to me, hey, you know, kiddo, that was his word. You probably, I don't know if, if yeah. yes. And, you know, he, he said, I have this book about Keats. I wonder if you'd be interested in it. And so he sent me um, his meditation on Keats that he had been working on for, I think, over maybe 20 years called Posthumous Keats that we that I ended up um, publishing and I became his editor and I published uh, his book of poems called Old Heart that was a finalist for the National Book Award and won like the I think the LA Times Prize. So our paths just kept overlapping and I'll never forget when my first book of poetry was taken by Knopf called The End of Desire, and I was a young um, junior editor at Norton. And Stan came to I, my first public reading was at Barnard, where I read from that book of poems, and Stan came to the reading and introduced me. Oh, I love Yeah, that. and that was the kind of person <coughs> you know, that it's, he was. It's, it's so beautiful to recognize the shoulders that we all stand on. Yes. And that's such an important thing, I think. Yeah. Particularly in this very narrow literary world that everyone lives in. Mm -hmm. I, I completely agree, Mitch. I do think that that as a being part of the literary world is, is about supporting other writers and the community that we're all trying to build together. Um, when you mentioned the changes in publishing, I think about the internet um, because that was probably the biggest during my history as an editor. That's probably the biggest change I experience, I've experienced was is the explosion of the internet and how writers are using that. They're using that to to promote their own work, right? But because of the internet, there's so many there's so many poems available on the internet that often books of poems right. are not purchased in the same way. Yeah, that aggravates me. <laughs> me too, <laughs> very much so. And also, um, people I know who teach and Xerox poems rather oh. than buying a book of you know asking their students to buy books or anthologies. Um, yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's uh, to give people out there an idea without giving away secrets. But with a normal book of poetry that you publish, what is the actual print run mm. on something like that? Yes. You know, I think that the print runs um, really can be for, for a first book of poetry or a second book, you know, between, you know, two or 3,000 copies in both formats. But once a poet becomes more established, they're selling many they're more selling copies. More. I mean, but, let's you know, Audrey Rich, of course, is her her poetry books have found a very wide net. Uh, Joy Harjo, her her books have also found a, a wide net even before 
becoming poet laureate. Right. But we're, I think we're in about our fifth printing now That's of American beautiful. Sunrise. The, the the point that I'm trying to get across is that it is pretty narrow, right? And that if there's a poet that you really like, you should go out and you should really buy their book. Yes, and um, you should really support them, even though that's not necessarily the way they make their living. Mostly, they're teaching or they're doing something else. But to be able to to, to buy their book is something. I think it's an act of um, it's an act of supporting literature and supporting poetry in a way that nothing else really does. I agree. Stanley told you when he said to go deeper, mm -hmm. to write about what really hurts. So are you able to do that better in poetry or do you do this? Do you take that same idea when you're writing your novels? Mm. I think poetry somehow, uh, I think of poetry as a more intimate art in some ways than I do fiction. In fiction, I'm, I'm usually exploring a cast of characters and and um, so somehow the stakes are more complicated. And um, but but I have recognized that, and I tell my authors this because I'm telling myself this, that in whatever you do, you need to embarrass the ancestors. And I think that that sort of segues with Stanley. Um, in other words, that if you're not writing what scares you, what embarrasses you, I don't know if you're if you're making an impact. I mean, I want to read books that that are memorable, that make me think and feel in different ways. That are and, expressing something close to the book. Right, yes. And I think that the books that I love most are the ones that really take those kinds of emotional risks. Other than the books that you're publishing, uh, you may not be reading anything else. I don't know how you have time to do anything else. But what, are you, what else are you reading mm -hmm. these days? Um, yes. Well, I've been reading. I'm trying to think what's on my nightstand right now. I've been reading um, Deborah Levy. I love her work. I should be reading more commercial books, um, but uh, right now I, I've been mostly interested in reading women's voices on, on my own time. Well, you are an inspiration for so many of us, and uh, I can't thank you enough for being here. But I have one final question. Given the variety of hats you wear, when you go abroad and when you have to fill out an immigration form entering a country, uh, what do you put down as occupation? <laughs> That's funny. Um, I actually put down executive editor slash writer. Perfect. Yes. <laughs> a well, great last question. I want to thank our executive editor slash writer, Jill Bialowski, for being on The Literary Life. Thank you so much, Jill. Thank you. Thank you.